Hey folks, welcome to the latest episode of Forgotten Foods, presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. This is your host, Rob Lamley. On Forgotten Foods, I'll be doing a deep dive into the history behind your favorite sentimental snacks, canceled candies, bygone soft drinks, and discontinued fast food items. For this first miniseries, we're looking at the history and the mystery behind a snack that seemed to be set to sweep the nation in the mid-80s, only to disappear before it ever really got off the ground. That's right, we're talking about the stuff. On the last episode of Forgotten Foods, I talked to Carol Schneider, a former employee of Fletcher Marketing who worked on the ad campaign for The Stuff and was deep into production to take it nationwide before the product was abruptly shut down. Carol told us about some of the plans for the campaign, including billboards in Times Square, a tie-in with Dukes of Hazard, and plenty more as the nationwide rollout was set to begin. The brains behind the campaign was Nicole Kendall, a wonderkind in the early 80s advertising world. Kendall left Fletcher Marketing under mysterious circumstances after visiting Atlanta, Georgia to handle some kind of problem surrounding the stuff. At the end of our conversation, Carol mentioned that she wasn't even sure what this stuff stuff was. She said it must have been safe because it had been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, but she didn't know what any of the ingredients actually were. I looked at the pictures of the stuff container that Frank Adams shared with us in the first episode, but there were no ingredients listed. This goes against another government agency, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, who has required ingredients be listed on food labels since 1966. So just what was the stuff, and how was it approved for consumption? To try to answer this question, I found a former USDA employee, Mark Barris, who worked for the department around the same time that the stuff was being produced. Yeah, I worked for the USDA from the summer of 82 until I retired back in 08. I would have been around when the stuff went through the approval process, but my notes tell me I didn't personally work on it. Not that I'd remember. To be honest, I worked on a lot of projects back then. His answer to why the ingredients weren't on the packaging was simple. If it was still in limited release, the ingredients wouldn't be required. The regulations requiring ingredients on packaging are exclusive for products being sold across state lines. This is so if there's a little old lady selling strawberry jam at a farmer's market down the street, she doesn't have to list ingredients on her jar. She could just write strawberry jam and chicken scratch on the label and call it a day. But if you're one of the big boys and you want to sell across state lines, that's when the ingredients have to be disclosed. But what about the fact that I had it in Illinois and Frank Adams had it in Florida? Yeah, but it wasn't being sold in those markets yet. It was a giveaway, right? That's the trick. Back in the 80s, you could get away with that kind of thing. But I'm sure that loophole has been closed off by now. Essentially, as long as they were giving the stuff away, they could say they were doing market testing to see if it could sell to a bigger customer base. Until they decided to sell it nationwide, they didn't need to tell anyone what was inside of it. But surely someone in authority had to have known what the ingredients were. That's not a me question. Ask the FDA. They would have been given a list of ingredients. The USDA and the Food and Drug Administration work closely together, so Mr. Barris gave me a few names of his former colleagues at the FDA who might be willing to help. One of his friends who worked for the FDA said they could answer some questions, but asked to remain anonymous. I worked for the FDA in the 80s. I can't uh, say the exact years, but uh, I wasn't part of the group that gave the approval for the stuff, but I was working there at the time. In fact, I remember trying the stuff myself one day in the office. Uh, one of the guys working on the panel that ultimately gave it approval had a sample that he was passing around because uh, he was excited about it. And, I mean, it was a good product. It was creamy, smooth, a little hint of vanilla. The texture was the main thing about it. 
It was good stuff. No pun intended. Would the FDA have known the ingredients? We would have required a list of ingredients before we allowed it to be tested on civilians. But there is a question of trade secrets. I mean, every year the Food and Drug Administration is entrusted with different manufacturing trade secrets. A manufacturer might consider their formulas, design, processes, or techniques to be trade secret that they don't want their competitors to know about in case it would hurt their market advantage. Now, back in the 70s and 80s, FDA would require that these trade secrets be disclosed before testing could begin. But information wouldn't be made public without serious consequences for FDA employees. So there would have been facets of the manufacturing process that might have required specific ingredients not be listed on the packaging. Now again, I didn't work on the stuff, so I can't really say if trade secrets would have come into play or not. Through the Freedom of Information Act, I was able to request records from the FDA pertaining to the stuff. I found that the stuff was given FDA approval on June 14, 1985, and included in the pile of PDFs that I was emailed was a list of ingredients. High fructose corn syrup, sodium alginate, a stabilizer made from seaweed that adds smoothness to items like ice cream, uh, vanilla flavoring, and something called Compound 34. I found another memo that claimed to list the ingredients for Compound 34, but it was entirely redacted. I'm not sure if that was done at the time or at some other point over the last 35 years, but either way, it was a dead end. When I asked our former FDA employee what he thought about this redaction, he again referenced trade secrets. Yeah, I can see it being a trade secret situation for sure. Often back then, a trade secret would only be disclosed to one or two people on the approval panel. The rest of the team would just accept that those people were okay with what had been disclosed if the product was to move forward. If they weren't okay with something, they had the power to shut down the whole kit and caboodle. I noticed at the bottom of the Compound 34 memo, the only lines not redacted, that it had been signed by Alvin Vickers and Tina McIntyre. In 1985, Vickers was a 19-year veteran administrator, and McIntyre was a lead chemist that had worked for the FDA for 13 years. I can only assume that these are the people on the stuff approval panel that were privy to the trade secrets of Good Stuff, Inc. When I googled Vickers and McIntyre in the hopes of interviewing either one of them, I found something very odd. They had both died within weeks of approving the stuff. McIntyre was killed crossing the street in a hit-and-run accident. The driver was never identified. Vickers' death was even more bizarre. He was mauled by his dog in his own home. As I continued sifting through the PDFs from the FDA, I started writing down names of people mentioned in internal memos, signatures on approval forms, you know, that sort of thing, until I had a pretty comprehensive list of FDA chemists and administrative staff that had worked on the stuff. Through additional Information Act requests, as well as some good old-fashioned internet sleuthing, I continued to find plenty of odd coincidences surrounding the people who approved the stuff. Shane Weathers, another veteran chemist, went missing while hiking the Appalachian Trail and is presumed dead. Sylvia Cosgrove, who had been an administrator for eight years, died only two days after the stuff was approved. Her death was ruled a suicide, a self-inflicted gunshot wound despite no record of her ever owning a gun. Karen Johnson died after being stabbed while walking her dog in Jessup Blair Park in Silver Springs, Maryland. Her assailant was never found. When her body was discovered by a jogger the next morning, she was still wearing all of her jewelry, and her wallet and keys were still inside her purse. Aside from suspicious deaths, many of the people involved in granting FDA approval for the stuff resigned or retired shortly after, with many of them leaving the country. 
Alvin Vickers retired and was in the process of moving to Spain before he was killed by his dog. Jim Starling, who had only worked for the FDA for two years and was part of the team that field tested the stuff, quit and moved to Scotland. Mary Fields, who had just been promoted to Associate Commissioner of Regulatory Affairs, put in her two-week notice and moved to Germany, where she worked as the head of quality control for a small, family-owned chocolatier until her death in 1996. Alan Schumacher, an FDA chemist, retired at the age of 34 to open a coffee shop in Amsterdam. I tried contacting some of the names I found in the redacted documents to see if they'd be willing to talk about the stuff, but either received no reply to my email inquiries or was politely but curtly turned down. A conspiracy theorist might see people resigning and then fleeing the country as a way to avoid accountability for shady approval practices, perhaps with a nice corporate payoff to help fund their new lives abroad. The deaths could be seen simply as tying up loose ends for those who were unwilling to take the payoff. Of course, this is all just speculation. But even if the resignations and deaths can be explained, the case of Stater, Virginia is impossible to ignore. Today, the FDA tests new products using a sample set of people who signed up through the FDA's website. It's all fairly high-tech now. The testers are sent free samples to try. They submit their feedback through a web survey. Once the survey is complete, they're compensated for their time. Testers are asked to report any negative side effects like allergic reactions, maybe an upset tummy or headache. Uh... But they also give general product questions, too, like about the smell, the taste, that sort of thing. The size of the sample set depends on the type of product that's being tested. A new painkiller will have a larger sample size because negative drug reactions have potentially more impactful than, say, a new dessert product like the stuff. Back in the 80s, before the internet, we'd roll into some small town, usually in middle America, offer to pay people to test products. If the town had, say, a thousand people, we might get two, three hundred that participate. And that was usually enough to be considered a sample set. Uh, we'd send FDA reps to town to distribute products, collect feedback from the participants. These field studies might take weeks or even months, depending on the product. I handled quite a few tests in my early days with the administration, living out of rundown motels in some of the most boring backwater towns in the country. For the stuff, that boring backwater town was Stater, Virginia, population 452, located in the southwest part of the state, only a few miles from the border of Tennessee. At the time, Bowser Manufacturing, a small plant that mainly produced parts used in smelting furnaces, had just moved its facilities from Stater to Todos Santos, Mexico, leaving much of Stater unemployed. The people of Stater were more than happy to get paid to try a new product for the FDA. From what I could gather from the FDA documents, nearly 300 people from Stater tested the stuff, so a little over half the town. And those 300 people absolutely loved the stuff. The feedback scores for taste, consistency, smell, and enjoyment were off the charts, nearly all perfect scores. No one reported any allergic reactions or had anything negative to say about it at all. When I showed our former FDA employee these reports, he said, Hmm. Well, I mean, with a report like that, FDA approval would be a foregone conclusion. But after the people of Stater had completed their test of the stuff, a very strange thing happened. One by one, they all mysteriously moved 400 miles away to Midland, Georgia, just south of Atlanta. And not just the 300 that tested the stuff. Virtually the entire population of Stater, Virginia moved leaving it a ghost town of empty streets and abandoned houses. And it's still like that today. 
If they were just looking for new jobs, larger cities like Knoxville, Chattanooga, and Atlanta are all on the way to Midland. So what was so special about Midland, Georgia? If Midland, Georgia sounds familiar, it's because in our last episode, Carol Schneider of Fletcher Marketing had this to say. I don't know the full story. I just know there was the Atlanta thing. Nicole traveled down to the Midland, Georgia plant where the stuff was made. She planned to shoot a commercial there, so she was scouting the location for ideas. While she was down there, there was some kind of problem with the stuff in Atlanta. There's no way it's a coincidence that the entire town of Stater, Virginia, moved to the home of the stuff right after they finished testing the stuff for the FDA. There has to be more to the story. And you're right, there is. Join us for the next episode of Forgotten Foods, where we'll dive into the story of Midland and we'll finally address the Atlanta thing that seems to have brought down the promising future of the stuff. Thanks for checking out Forgotten Foods, presented by the Space Monkey X Audio Workshop. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, if you have any questions or comments about our current series, reach out to us on Twitter at SpaceMonkeyX. Head over to our website, SpaceMonkeyX.net, for this episode's show notes, as well as links to our other podcasts. This has been your host, Rob Lamley. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.